Today, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Now, you know from listening to this show that our money is broken. Fortunately, we have Bitcoin, a better money that will help us build a brighter future. But if you don't have a Bitcoin strategy and a trusted partner to help you execute that strategy, then you're probably going to fall behind. Now, I've known the Swan Bitcoin team for years. The Bitcoiners at Swan are mission driven and have deep expertise and respect in the Bitcoin space. In my opinion, this is the team you want on your side. Today, I'd like to highlight Swan's private client services division, which guides high net worth individuals and businesses around the world toward building and preserving wealth with Bitcoin. So visit swanprivate.com and learn how this concierge service gives you direct access to your dedicated Bitcoin advisor by phone, messaging, and email. Swan will guide you on complex areas such as self-custody, or you can choose to hold your Bitcoin through Swan with one of the largest U.S. regulated custodians. So make your first purchase with Swan Private and get $100 of Bitcoin. Just tell them that I sent you. You know, an opportunity like this to build and preserve legacy impacting wealth for your family and company will not likely be seen again in our lifetimes. Sign up at swanprivate.com today, mention Breedlove to your advisor, and get $100 in free Bitcoin when you make your first buy. John, it's great to have you back. It's great to be back. <laughs> um, we're going to continue going into Crato, I'm sorry, Plato's critique of impure reason here. And we're now in chapter three, which is titled Breaking In, Reversal, and Reality. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I was just saying to you offline, I think a lot of a lot of what Plato is doing here with Socrates is using him as this enacted symbol or perfect image of the good yes. um, in a way that you can't. Again, it's one of those things because it's un, it's absolute, perhaps it's unspeakable to some extent. So he's using this dialogical approach with Socrates as the main protagonist i suppose as being the the emblem or symbol of of goodness itself um and i'll read just a couple of quick excerpts here to get us rolling so schindler writes the crux of the problem from the beginning has been to discover a ground for judgment beyond the relativity of appearances to make such a ground, quote unquote, appear requires a quote unquote, perfect image, failing which the dialogue as a whole would necessarily founder. Mm. And he goes on to write what is truly absolute, and we've said this before, what is truly absolute must also be relative. What is truly transcendent must also be imminent. Yes. And now uh, at the end of the sex up, he quotes from the Parmenides, how can we bring the absolute into intelligible relation with a relative? This is not just a question, but is rather the question of knowledge, intelligibility, and truth, as we have sought to show from the beginning. And, you know, I, I guess the punchline here is it's, it is Socrates who ultimately, ultimately makes the good manifest without compromising its absoluteness. Yes. Which we're going to unpack today. Yeah. Um, I don't have a, let's see here. 
There's one thing that came up for me. This is also from the foot from a footnote. The good always shows itself as it is not. The good shows itself only through images. Mm-hmm. And I was I'm reminded of that. Um, this is an example I think I, I got from Peterson that he got from perhaps the Jewish Kabbalah, where he talks about God being limitless. Yes. And if you ask yourself, you know, what does an omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient being like a limitless God lack? And the answer is limitation itself. So it's something like the good or God can only show itself through limitation or, or images, perhaps. Um, so <laughs> that's just me reading a bunch of excerpts and throwing some things at you. I would just love to hear your thoughts as we break into chapter three about breaking in reversal and reality. <laughs> well, first of all, uh, the, uh, the last thing you said, I'll go in reverse since reversal is uh, the topic of the chapter. But um, yeah, uh, I mean, Kabbalah is basically what you get when you integrate in a reciprocal reconstruction, the intersection of Neoplatonism and Judaism. And this is what, what I mean in other places where I talk about this amazing capacity for Neoplatonism to enter into these marriages, these reciprocal reconstructions with Judaism um, in Kabbalah, uh, with Islam and Sufism, with Christianity and Christian Neoplatonism, uh, but also with science, both uh, during the Renaissance and the first scientific revolution, and then during the scientific revolution of the Einsteinian paradigm shift. Um, And so this is something that deeply intrigues me about this proposal. For me, this is a kind of extra textual evidence and historical evidence that there's something profound at work within the Neoplatonic framework, that it has this kind of capacity uh, to enter into these powerful marriages with other religions, wisdom traditions, um, etc. And so I just wanted to note that uh, just from the beginning. This is why I consider Neoplatonism a potential contender for a way of thinking that will give us a courtyard of theologos as opposed to courtrooms of debate. So I just wanted to make a note of that uh, just from the beginning as a, as a way of recommending how we can situate what we're talking about here in a larger context. Now, the, 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 the figure of Socrates, this, was, this is a famous essay by Pierre Hadot. Um, and that, again, to set this in context, um, the figure of Socrates is going to be taken up. It's going to be taken up by the Cynics, by the Stoics, uh, by, by the Neoplatonists. It's going to be, is a pivotal figure. And I think what DC Schindler is trying to do here is to uh, trying to explicate perhaps something that was always implicit, which is, as you rightly said, uh, the symbolic nature of Socrates. Again, let's remember what we talked about. We talked about symbols last time. This isn't one thing standing for another horizontally. This is one thing participating in something from a more expansive frame. And, and, uh, and, 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 so, and that is very much the image of procession in return, that vertical understanding of symbolism. And of course, Socrates exemplifies that uh, in the whole of the Republic. And so the, the thing I think that would help to get into those passages 
I'm, I'm narrowing the context more and more here in reverse, like I promised to do, is to remember that Socrates is the fourth in a set of images where the first three are explicit. And then Socrates is not explicit in this dialogue and other dialogues here, but he, as you said, he's an enacted exemplification of the good. And of course, the, the, those um, uh, you know, three are the, the sun, uh, the divided line and um, the cave. Uh, and we've talked all about those, uh, but what Schindler is reminding us that we wanna, you know what, you know, triangulation, we can sort of do polyangulation through all these images. Uh, and, and then we set Socrates in that context. And one of the things that is apparent in all of those images is this very, right, this sort of procession and return. Um, there's one key passage that I might want to read actually uh, from the book because it brings out a, 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 a Neoplatonic theme that Schindler says, but could say more about. Uh, I'll just I'll just do um, you know just just one of these right, explicitly. You know the whole thing is the sun is to light, and then what we use is we use this image of sun and sunlight to try and understand the relationship between the good and right and, and all the appearances, right? But what Chandler says, is, and this is really, really powerful, is if you really get the image, if you use this image to get the good, you realize that it reverses because the sun and the light are themselves just, right? They participate in the good, right? It, it, and so you get this very, you get this realization that, oh, wait, I use this metaphor to under, understand the good, but once I get some sense of that, I have to come, I have to go the reverse and realize that what I'm calling the sun and light are themselves participating in this, if I've understood the analogy correctly. And I won't repeat all that because we've talked about that in the last two uh, meetings, but, um, and, and I, here I'll read this passage because I think it's really crucial and it really helps get uh, what's going on with Socrates. If you'll give me just one second to find it. Uh, this is on page 150. Okay. In the analogy of the sun, the mind pursues the the mind that pursues the good must begin with and ascend from a relative image in order to grasp the goodness, the good, sorry, in order to grasp the good's absoluteness and therefore transcendence. But it must simultaneously, this is the point I want to emphasize, it must simultaneously descend from the good to its image and thus perceive its relativity. These movements as distinct as they are cannot be simply separated from one another without undermining both of them. Instead, they form a complex whole in the flash of the paradoxical moment that Plato describes at length in the Parmenides, which connects contraries and thus lies at once with, within and beyond them. So, that's you know you get and 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 the, the I want to give another image to try and help people. It's an image that I've used before, where you're reading some text, and we actually know this is how the brain does it. The brain is simultaneously trying to figure out the letters, and it's using that to start to figure out what the words are. But it's also at the same so it's going up from the letters to the words but it's simultaneously going from candidates of the words down to the letters. It's going up and down simultaneously. 
And so you just read the text. You don't, you don't experience it as, oh, from the letters to the words, at least not once you learn how to read well, right? and not from the words, but you are constantly using the words to disambiguate the letters and the letters to construct the words. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Is that catal okay. catalogically, is that the term he uses for that? that? Well, the catalogical is a theological term, means when you're sort of, uh, sort of gently taking a, 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 a you know, taking apart, dismember, uh, disassembling sort of uh, false pretensions that people have to knowing. Um, and so you're going, you're going up analogically, but then you get this thing that comes down that reminds you that whatever grasp you have ha made of the sun, sorry, of the good through the sun, you have actually not really got it because the sun itself is made intelligible by the good. Is that yes. did that work? Yes. Yeah, yeah, right. What right? So right. So you you're I'm trying to use like the the letters and the and the whole word stands for the whole, right? That we've been talking about. So you you're, and when you're reading, you're going simultaneously up and down. It's bottom up and top down, and it's emergent and emanation in a completely interpenetrating manner. Now, for me, and he's right, Plato makes a special case of this in the Parmenides. And, and the whole Neoplatonic tradition drew this out about where you get right this, this reconciliation of the opposites. But for me, the person, I, I want to relate something. Uh, I might have talked talk to you about this before, I don't know. But I want, I, I want to try and give another thing to try and get this, because I want to get all of this really clear before we can then talk about Socrates. Okay. So, and here's somebody that's in the Neoplatonic tradition, but integrating Neoplatonism probably through Maimonides and possibly Kabbalah with Cartesian metaphysics, and that's Spinoza. Okay, so you're reading Spinoza's ethics and it's, you know, axiom, you know, proposition, proof, theorem. It's like Euclid's mathematics, exactly. And you're reading it and, and it's really, right? And, and, you're, and then what happens if you really try to get it you get this flash and spinoza calls it scientia intuitiva in which you you get a sense of the whole argument in this way you get a sense of the whole argument and how it's showing up in each premise and how each premise builds to the whole argument and then you realize that that itself is how reality is and you get that scientia intuitiva, that direct knowing that he talks about, that is bottom up, top down, and you reach up from your image, but you also realize that the image is actually grounded in something. It's actually participating in what it is pointing to. It's not just pointing to it. So you get this, you get like almost a mystical experience because not only do you get that sudden, right, right, the whole in each part and the part in each whole, that is itself participating in the very structure of reality, according to Spinoza. Did that well, story help? Yeah, yes, no, it does. The um, Yeah, so you have emergence, which is bottom up, emanation, which is top down, but it's right. the confluence of these two things yes. engaged in some dialogical process that is the cosmos somehow yes or, or constitutes so you, the cosmos so when you when you we put it this way when you 
when you enact that sort of fundamental cognitive grammar of sense making, you are actually participating in the fundamental structure of reality. That's what's going on with all of these images. That's the reversal. You, you go from looking at an image to having reality looking through the image at you, if I can mm. put it. That's interesting. So yeah, you, you, I guess, start out thinking you're looking out onto the world, but if you look deeply enough, it's almost like you come full circle back yes. in, like you are the thing at which you are looking at, attempting to look at. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And, and you can see, and people are very different, very like within Christianity, we, we will know as we are known. And then Nietzsche, if you look long enough into the abyss, it begins to look back through you, right? right? And so the, the people have right the, the, this experience. Uh, Nishitani calls it the real self-realization of reality. Um, and he actually, that's his definition for religion. So that's a really interesting thing. Okay, now the point about Socrates is that Socrates does this not as, right? Socrates does this with the, with, with, with the dialogue of the Republic, right? So, so they're creating this city in imagery, the Republic, they're talking about making a, you know, a, 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 a quote unquote perfect society. And then Socrates actually breaks into it and right as and, and and he seems to be doing something like the way the sun shines or the way somebody you know goes into the cave and what he's doing therefore is he right you're getting this image and so um, we got, let's do this really slowly and carefully sorry robert i don't mean to i don't mean to tax your patience but right so remember what's going on in the republic we're getting a, an image of the city the republic and it corresponds to the, right, its structural functional organization corresponds to the structural functional organization of the psyche. And so what Plato is doing is by seeing this, you can understand the psyche and by understanding the psyche, you can understand this. And that actually helps you to enact anagoge. I can right, reciprocally open out and then it come, I take it back in and I'm doing all that. Okay, so that's first of all what's happening. And then Socrates is breaking into that from the outside, right, in the text. And you go, what's going on here? What, like, why is, why is Socrates doing that? Because Socrates is not just a, somebody telling us the story of, of this anagage, of the ascent out of the cave to see the sun or the return. He's actually somebody who has, right, had that moment that we just talked about, that moment of sciencia intuitiva. And, and remember, this is not a moment of just cognitive realization. That's a moment when you, of ontological realization, you are participating in the very structure of reality itself. And so Socrates, is actually by the by the by the way he's relating to all of this imagery he's sort of trans image he is therefore trying to shock us into participating in how he has had that realization and therefore he becomes he becomes a symbol but in the in, in the participatory sense we can actually 
if this doesn't sound too clunky, we can actually enact Socrates in a profound way. So Socrates is, 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 is he's the image of the images. And, and he is, like I said, he is exemplifying this show, this act of exemplification shows other dialogues. So you, what you'll often get is you'll get is an intuitive authority and they'll be arguing about what courage is or something like that. And Socrates will sort of go back and forth between them and then it ends and there's no definition of courage and everybody goes, what the heck was all that about? If you only read the propositions, but if you pay attention to the drama, you see Socrates actually exemplifying the thing that nobody can define is actually exemplifying the courage. And the two generals, I think it's in the Lysis, that are talking to him about courage, they want their sons to spend time with him at the end of the dialogue. Uh, you were describing this sort of perhaps a comparison between Socrates and Christ to some extent. And yeah, was, I, I, yeah, go ahead. I, that was yeah, just coming through for me as you were talking, that you were talking about this individual breaking in and exemplifying yeah. all of these things yes. that we can't quite get into propositional uh, yes. knowledge, but but we can actually embody and be. In many ways, that's how I view how as a Christian, someone that grew up Christian, I view Christ right like the ultimate yes. Um, yes. mode of being for for a human or for consciousness per se. And it seems like Socrates is perhaps playing that role in this dialogue. Right. And, and what I said, because I didn't want to give offense, is I wanted to point out that D.C. Schindler is a very committed Christian, right? And he is writing this about Socrates as someone who considers himself a committed Christian, which means he wants us to be very clear about what Plato is saying about Socrates and not see it as something that might be threatened, uh, might threaten the you know, the view of Christ that's presented in the New Testament. And so I just wanted to state that for people who might be going, oh, you're making him sound like a god. He's not, he's not. He, he, so there's no claim made to like finite transcendence. Socrates is never, it's never claimed that he's a god ever or anything like that. But what, what Plato is trying to show is that insofar as, uh, as Socrates identifies himself with the practice of dialogos and the practice of breaking into people's frame and helping them give birth beyond themselves, right? And his deep commitment to enacting that and exemplifying the virtues that he's trying to call people to, he is therefore a living symbol of the good. Uh, that's the main point. And, and so we know that, well, at least from Plato, you know, Socrates was capable of profound, uh, you know, states of, you know, of mindfulness of standing in one place, unmoving for 48 hours. I think it's very plausible that he had this scientia intuitiva kind of experience regularly and it's, and, and in that sense, and in that sense, I think it is fair to think of him as an enlightened individual. And insofar, now I'll just speak poetically, insofar as he was enlightened, he is an enacted symbol of, right, of the light 
of intelligibility of the good of the sun, etc, etc, etc. I've tried to say it about three or four different ways to and, and, and try to set it in context and and make clear how right it, it shouldn't be uh, people can compare as they wish, but it shouldn't be conflated or confused with the with the with the gospel account of the incarnation of the logos. Um, now, quite a few of the early church fathers saw Socrates as kind of prefiguring Christ. Um, that is the way Christians have tried to uh, manage the relationship. I'm just saying you they. Well, this is a I think a very profound and important claim to be made about Socrates. It is not a claim that he is divine. It is not a claim uh, that he is the logos or anything like that. But it is nevertheless a claim that he is something more than just speaking. He is, well, uh, he is a living symbol. He is enlightened in that sense. Yes, the um, for me it was he appeared to be as this living symbol of the good, which in my interpretation was uh, perhaps Plato putting this emphasis on praxis itself, on action. Um, and I think later on in the book, he describes how, you know, really integrity itself is matching word and deed, right? To be yes. what you say you're yes. going to be. It's not enough just to say it. It's not enough just to do it. Like they need to, there needs to be coherence between these, these two domains um, yes. to approach goodness, I guess, or, or exemplify goodness in your life. Right. And so now let's turn it into, let's turn the language of the good back into the language of reason. You, 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 it's not enough to have propositional reason, rationality. You have to have procedural, perspectival, participatory, and they have to do the bottom up, top down with each other in a way that conforms to reality. So you're not just speaking about it. You are actually exemplifying in the guts of your intelligibility the conforming to the structure of reality. Mm -hmm. I would say not just talking the talk, very, but walking very the walk, much. Right? And, the, and then <laughs> yeah. what we get is that the completion, not in the sense of finish, but the sort of the best that humans can do, right, of contemplative reason is this deep conformity, conformity with the depths of reality. Beautiful. Oh, thank you for that introduction. That really sets the stage, I think, for where we're going today. Um, so jumping forward a little bit, I'm on, I'm going to go to page 145, 146 here, yeah. where uh, Schindler is using, or I guess referring to Plato's use of the sun as yeah. the image of the good, which we've touched on several times. Um, but I'll just read an excerpt here. Schindler writes, first of all, Socrates insists that the sun is different from both the eye and its vision. This difference allows it to be a mediating third that joins the eye to its object. Moreover, its being the mediating third makes it the specific cause of sight. Yes. And he, later on in the paragraph, he writes, the operation of sight for Plato is clearly not a purely mechanical act, but involves an intrinsic relation among the elements. The sun, as the sovereign agent in this act, is simultaneously distinct from and present within the act itself. And this simultaneity is the condition of possibility 
for the act to take place. Yes. So it seems like this um, idea, or, you know, I guess the sun is the best analogy for something that is transcendent and imminent simultaneously, right? It's, it's, yes. it is enabling vision, but it's not vision, something That's like right. that. Um, and, and obviously it's, it's sovereignty and independence from us. I guess all of that's baked in its absoluteness relative to human affairs is, is baked into yes. that analogy as well. Yes. Um, and I love that. I really zeroed in on this term, this mediating third. Yes. That's what we yes. keep falling, coming yeah. back to like every direction yeah. we come. It's transjective again, you know, the transjectivity. And again, and again yeah, yeah. you know, and in the economic sense, money is the medium of exchange. It is the mediating third yeah. for the market process. Yeah. So, yes. it's, and it's used for perception. It's used for, you know, uh, intelligibility in the market sense, which is the pricing system. So there's all these, um, all this overlap, I suppose. Yes, and you can really deepen it because if you remember uh, the analogy, if you remember Plato, uh, Socrates is saying, the sun is the source of both life and light. So mm -hmm. yeah, the sun is casting the light that lights the object and, and brings it to the eye. But the sun is ultimately empowering the life of me, my power of sight. Mm. So the sun is empowering my sight. It's creating the light, and, right? And, and so it, it, you have to remember that that's how it's actually present in both poles and you know, ground. It's illuminating the object. It's powering my sight. And so it's actually making... Uh, it's actually making the relationship between the object and I possible, even though it is not anything that is usually seen when I'm looking at or considering any object. So the idea that Plato's trying to get across there is when you are knowing something, you have to remember the good is ultimately the I read that wonderful excerpt on you know the, the mediating third, the transjectivity, the sun analogy, and I. I I wanted to remind you that, uh, you know, what, what Socrates says about the sun, it's not just the source of light, it's the source of life. And so it's not just illuminating the object, right? it, it, it's empowering my biology. In fact, it's, a, it's empowering the entire ecology. It's, a, it's been empowering the whole evolution. So my, the sun is in my body and in my capacity for sight um, in a very, very real way. And it's also, right, it's illuminating the object in and it drives the weather systems that have shaped objects. And so you bring all of that to bear, and, and right? And so when you realize that, you realize how the sun is really making it possible for me and the object to fit together, to belong together in this deep way. And then when you realize that, you realize that you're not just using the image of the sun as an image, you are actually participating right, in the sun and its light and its life. And then that itself is the deeper symbol of how everything participates in the good in that, in that manner. So I, was, I, I, I hope that's a, a, a better way of getting at it. The, the, that is beautiful. The way you say it energizes your very biology. Um, you know, I've made this point previously that all the energy in the world really is at root solar energy. 
yeah. you know, it's all the plants, all the motion of the oceans, the animals. Yeah. Um, someone did make this deeper point to me at one point, though, they said, well, actually, if you trace it all the way back, it's gravitational energy that even created yes. the sun, right? And if you trace it back, it's whatever exploded the singularity of the one before the Big Bang that is empowering the gravity and the laws. And that gets us very close to the good, that absolute one that is nevertheless the source of all of this difference and all of this energy and all of this information. Yeah, so that's, that's a great way of capturing that uh, procession and reversion in a way that yeah, you, yes, and yes. Uh, the word you use was the scientia in, in scientia intuitiva. Which yes. is almost like a flash of insight, perhaps, something like yes, that. Yes, that's exactly what it, it means for Spinoza. But it's this kind of insight. It's an insight that a lot like that involves all of you, right? It's an insight that in which the so in which the act of insight itself becomes symbolically uh, laden. It itself is participating um, in what is being symbolized yes there's this um and they go into this later in the book that was this flash you, you go from observer and observed into this flash of just pure participation yes yes and and, um, and, and when you get a whole bunch of those and they're and they and they're self-organizing you get the flow state right which is the peak life experience yes yes yeah wow it's so interesting and it, it's um yeah, it's, it's amazing how that, I guess when you're in the, the state of observer and observe, it's just symbolic, but then somehow that symbolic analysis crashes into your present reality. Yes, and that's, that's yes. the feeling of epiphany in a way, right? Yes, 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 yes. Oh. And, this, and, and what Socrates was, was a person who lived the enacting engendering of, of, of epiphanies in people. In fact, this, the, the cynics, which I mean in the ancient sense, not in the modern sense, like Diogenes, they didn't pick up on Socrates' question and answer or any. All they did was go around doing this performative stuff that they lived, by the way, in which they were trying to sort of shock people into these profound, epi profound epiphanies. Because that's how, that's how significant that aspect of Socrates is. It was a whole movement that grew up just trying to capture that dimension. That's amazing. Even the language, you know, you say shock people into an epiphany. It's, it's, yeah. it's electric, it's energy. It's, um, yeah, yeah. it's incredible. Um, okay. So I think this is related. I'm going to jump to uh, 147, 148 here. Uh, and I'll read a couple of excerpts. One, he says, when, when we grasp things, as it were, in the light of the good, we have knowledge, which is proper intellection. On the other hand, if we grasp them apart from the good, we have mere opinion. Mm -hmm. So there's this, there's uh, kind of the, the difference between knowledge and opinion is found here as well. Yes. And he goes on to write, recalling from the end of book five in the Republic, we would say that he is referring here to the relative aspect of reality, which is manifest to the senses in contrast to the absolute aspect accessible to the mind. Yes. This relative aspect is the realm indicated on the divided line as that of the physical, as opposed to the intelligible. Yes. These are the things that make up the visible realm. 
but this means Plato is characterizing physical vision as a dim or derivative form of intellection itself. Yeah. Yes, yes. So yes. That, that's the deep continuity hypothesis, actually. Yeah. So and for in, in the economic sense, there's a great book by Henry Hazlitt called Economics in One Lesson. And he gives he describes economics as the science of hidden consequences. Mm. And so there's this whole realm of unseen principles, effectively, which you could, I guess, analogize these to the platonic forms in a way yep. that are more real than what you see. <laughs> and what we see are just the manifestations of these principles in action, effectively. So, you know, yes. the, um, the main one being, you know, man must act, for instance, He's, it's like a principle you can't escape because to even yes, try yes. to not act is an action, etc. Um, what is the question I had about this? Okay, so actually, let's just leave it there. And then I'll, I'll read another except and ask you a question. But what well, is well, it? Can I say, can I say one thing about it? Yes. Uh, because, I mean, it's now a serious hypothesis thesis, one that I try to defend in 4E cognitive science, that there's a deep continuity between vision, right, uh, and, and cognition, and, and there's also a deep continuity between mind and biology. And, and so it, the, this is not a crazy idea that Plato is talking about that, right? And you can think about, you know, think about attention and the way it bridges uh, between perception and conception, or think about um, the way in which we, we use our ability to navigate physical space that gets exacted, and think of that language, that gets exacted into our capacity for moving around a conceptual space. And notice what I'm doing with my hands as I'm trying to talk about these deeply conceptual matters. And so I think, you know, uh, I, I, what I'm doing is I'm just trying to show how current cognitive science is actually making Plato's claim very plausible. Yeah, one of the most profound things I took away from your awakening from the meaning crisis was the the prevalence of metaphor and everything even when we when yeah. we say understand i always come back to that one yeah, as a common yeah, yeah, one you're yeah, trying yeah. to stand beneath it to get a better grip yeah. on it i guess um well that, so, that's actually a good analogy for how to use all these images uh think about how we have these enacted and we we embody them in gesture these enacted metaphors for intelligibility for understanding i receive it i get it I see it, I grasp it, I understand it. Yeah, and think about what is, why do we have all these different ones and we're using all these different sense images and, and, and the way we enact them because we're trying to poly, right? Like, 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 like not triangulate, but polyangulate through all these images to something that isn't captured completely by any of them. That's a very good point, uh, Robert, bringing out that, that, that sort of, and, and, and these are not just metaphors that we, speak these are metaphors we're continually enacting all the time in our very bodies and the very ways we're trying to make sense of the world yes that's a great that's a that's a very helpful analogy yeah so the uh the word there might be consilience have you heard this term where it's yeah a, e. Wilson's term yeah yeah. yeah 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 which is similar to uh, maybe multi-factor multi-method um I, I think you guys use some term like that and cognitive science or elsewhere where you if a lot of different levels of analysis point in the same direction that lends more credence to that direction yeah that's um, a, a, i argue explicitly that that's what we mean by 
Well, I argue that two things, and this is like the procession of the return. When all of these things independently converge, right, that gives you high trustworthiness. And then when that gives you insight that you didn't have before, and when it does both, that's when something's highly plausible, profound, mm. deserves to be taken very seriously. You're making excellent connections, Robert. Mm. Very helpful. Uh, well, I, I take no credit because this is really, again, it's just through the lens of like a market process, really, where you have multiple, again, the price is the example I always come back to. It's kind of like a really good example, I guess, in economics is you're taking everyone's individual perspectives and just compressing right. all that data into one number. And that one number is what makes the whole, you know, any industry the price of copper, the price of aluminum, whatever it is, that's guiding the actions of everyone associated as either a consumer right. or a producer of that, of that good. So of that good, of course. Let me make sure I understand you, because I think I do. But so you're saying you've, you've got all of these divergent perspectives and judgments, and, and then they converge it onto this price. But then that has all of these effects outward in guiding uh, all kinds of economic behavior. Did I get you correctly? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's very much like the procession and the reversion and that all yeah, of yeah. those buying and selling actions crystallize in the price. But then the price itself is also driving and informing buying and selling actions. So it's a isn't constant it, feedback. Isn't it interesting that we are finding these deep, right, the, the, these deep conciliances between economic processes, biological processes, and physical processes, um, and, 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 and how thinking in platonic terms allows us to realize these deeper, deeper patterns. Yes, it adds to the profundity, without a doubt. Um, yes. And again, uh, on price, you know, there's there's objective supply, what is objectively available in the world, and there's subjective demand, which is all the people that want the thing. And it's at the nexus of objective supply, subjective demand, you find transjective price, which is right, kind of, right. it's transcendent of both, but imminent in both and coordinating human action itself, which as we're saying here with Socrates, action is like that pre-intellectual cutting edge that you can't, you can't quite abstract it into propositional knowing, right? There's something about, something about praxis that you, uh, I guess it's all four levels connected to use your language. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yeah, very much. And that's what that, so Socrates by exemplifying the whole of rationality, I'm using my words very carefully here, also exemplifies right the whole of reality not the complete or the total but he is directing us towards the whole because he exemplifies right the alignment of all of the whole not of all of the whole of rationality the alignment of the four kinds of knowing right and yeah and, and so that is exactly uh what what, what this notion of contemplative reason is re really being, I think, profoundly deepened here because of, of the way it's showing how much it is realizing our rationality in that, you know, the way it's stacking the four Ps, but also the, how much it's helping us to realize the depth of reality. And those two are bound together in this process of deep conformity. Yeah, it's, it's uh, an overwhelming insight in many ways, um, but really the freaking fact, cool. 
Yeah, I mean, well, uh, they they've estimated that Plato has an has an IQ of like off the scale, probably like two twenty or something like that. Um, and, and and then and then it's I think it's apparent to you, Schindler is uh, astonishingly brilliant. Um, and, and so you know, yeah, we we are in uh, we are in very capable hands. Uh, so <laughs> the the shoulders of giants upon which yeah. we stride um okay i am going to let me go here so this is talking about uh again the relationship between actually this is about on the nature of the absolute and right. again when i'm reading and thinking about this when i think about the profundity of bitcoin i'm, I'm typically thinking just for your knowledge you know absolute fixed supply we've never created any asset in human history that has an absolute fixed supply we right, never created right. so far as i know i don't think we've created anything that's absolute you could say the number zero is kind of an absolute in a way even infinity is not an absolute because right. you know there's multiple infinities yes yes but zero in a mathematical sense is a pretty close symbol of this yes um, yeah so and there's a whole thing about that but just so you know what i'm thinking when i'm <laughs> Uh, reading through the nature of the, the absolute here. Schindler writes, rather than grasping the good by ascending analogous, analogously from the physical sun, we must understand that the sun, through downward thought, catalogically from the good. A reversal of this sort is inevitable when it is a question of understanding something absolute. Because the good is the transcendent principle of understanding, it cannot, in fact, be understood in terms of anything but itself. And he goes on to write, while it is true that we lose what we thought was the ground, so to speak, the similarity and the causality that found it remains. It is just that now the order has been reversed and the relationship between the terms fundamentally recast. So um, in this reversal, this, you know, you're ascending towards the good through the use of symbol, but right. then there's that flash of insight or whatever, and it just yeah. blows out all the, you, you almost transcend to another level. Um, I, you, I wanna, realize, you realize the symbol has you, like, like that's what I was right. trying to do with the sun. It has me much more than I have it in thought. And while I'm pointing out to it, I, I realize how I'm actually grounded within it. And then I realize that the sun and I are both grounded in the good, the, the, the very capacity to draw the, 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 the sun and I into relationship. Yes. It, one of the most humbling experiences you could probably have as a human, right? You're, yeah, yeah, yeah. You are yeah, almost, almost arrogantly thinking you're Comp comprehending the universe or these high things and then all of a sudden it just it blows the slats out from under you and it's like you are that thing um and that 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 moment you just and, and, and remember there's a simultaneity to it mm -hmm. that's the moment of learned ignorance mm -hmm. and that's that's the epitome of socrates's claim that he is wise because he knows what he does not know. Mm. But this is the perfect, this isn't just, well, I don't know stuff. This is, I can ascend as when I truly rationally in the way we've been talking about it ascend, I get this humbling realization of how I am not 
I'm not grasping as much as I'm being grasped by reality. Right. Yeah, it's the the young quote comes up for me again. People don't have ideas. Ideas have people. I think um, that was an excellent way to start this whole series. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that comes up, and I know I brought it up a lot, Leela by Persig. Yeah. Probably the key insight in that book that really blew me away was he has this he has this line or set of lines where he says that I'll paraphrase, you could take the entire scientific corpus anywhere that says A causes B, you could replace that with B values precondition A. Yes. And it would yes. change none of the data at all, but it would completely yes. invert the interpretation. It would make value fundamental. Is it possible that we could have some type of um, Copernican-like revolution in our view on science in that way? That, and, yeah. and I think we're yeah. sort of exploring it here where it's not material. There's not a material mechanical reality. There's some transjectivity or conformity between subject object. So maybe the yes. transject itself is more fundamental. Well, I, I think so. Um, and towards your, your, the first part of your question, I have a colleague, Dennis Walsh at the University of Toronto, brilliant, who's arguing within the philosophy of biology for exactly that kind of reversal. He's saying that in addition to causal explanations, we need explanations that work in reverse. Um, so not so much that, uh, you know, uh, A causes B, but also that B is conducive uh, to A, right? And I can't go into the details, uh, and I'm just going to ask for a bit of trust on your part and the listener's part. They can go and look at his work. Uh, it's brilliant. But he's trying to, and that's like what we were talking about last time about uh, you know, the differences between causes and constraints and, and things like that. Um, he, yeah, he's very much trying to say that there is another way in which things make a difference, which is other than just causation. <clears throat> and, and, and of course, the difference that makes a difference is, you know, Bateson's definition of an information. And, and there's, there's, so it's a, that reversal, I think, and that I think this is what Dennis is trying to do, you, you know, where we supplement the, the causal direction this way with this conducive relationship the other way, like Persick is talking about, by the way, because it's generating information and intelligibility, the goodness. Um, I think that's what we're going to need, actually, uh, to deeply integrate um, our understanding of the mind as an information processor with the emerging recognition of information as a fundamental dimension of reality within physics. And there are people trying to do that right now. So all of that is very, very, you know, gestural and promissory because you were asking me a, 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 a speculative question, but I think it's reasonable to see these signs as pointing to uh, the, the potential for just that kind of reversal that you were talking about. It's very um, interesting, and I, I'm on an instinct here. I'm going to jump ahead, actually, to something that I yeah. think is relevant to this topic, and that is the dramatic structure of knowledge. So yes. Perhaps Plato is not only writing a, a drama here, but he's actually mirroring the very structure of knowledge itself somehow. He's exemplifying it. He's yes. exemplifying it. 
just like Socrates exemplifies. Mm -hmm. This is like there's all there's these nestings of exemplification. This is why the Republic is a spiritual exercise. It is not just a book you read. Well said. Now I'd like to tell you about a great new Bitcoin show on the scene that you've got to check out. Brought to you by Swan Studios and Bitcoin Magazine, this show is Hard Money with Natalie Brunel. Natalie is an Emmy-nominated journalist bringing unparalleled experience to the Bitcoin media scene. And personally, Natalie is one of my favorite voices in the Bitcoin space. Each week on Hard Money, you'll get the top headlines of the week with analysis you won't find anywhere else. Hard-hitting interviews with amazing guests like myself and other top minds in the Bitcoin space. And the show will take you directly into the lives being changed by Bitcoin all over the world. Check out Hard Money at swan.com backslash hard money. Today, I want to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. So how does health insurance work? You send an egregious amount of money to an insurance company. They hold it in a pool of depreciating fiat currency. Then when you have a large health event, you have to pay them even more via your deductible. And then you hope they will cover your bill. And in fact, one in six bills are denied by healthcare.gov plans. It's time to take control of your own healthcare bills. I'd like to introduce you to CrowdHealth. It's a decentralization of healthcare using Bitcoin as an alternative to health insurance. Instead of sending fiat currency to a big corporation, you send that money to an account controlled by you, a portion of which is converted into Bitcoin. Then if you have a big health event, you have a community of Bitcoiners that will use the money in their accounts to help you out. To get more details, go to joincrowdhealth.com backslash breedlove, where you can find the promo code for $99 a month for six months. Okay, I'll read an excerpt here. This is from page 171. Schindler writes, there are necessarily several moments to the single act of grasping the good, which is in fact more a being grasped than a grasping, yes. as you just yes. said. It is this complexity that makes it a supra-intentional object. It becomes immediately manifest only through the articulation of an ordered sequence, desire, expropriation, and fulfillment. A unified sequence we could describe as a plot with a beginning, middle, and end as Aristotle prescribed. Indeed, for Aristotle, the very best plots possess a reversal that brings about a resolution. Yes. So maybe this is a good, good one to grab onto here is the climax of a film, if we just use a film, for yeah. instance, that is a yeah. reversal. That is yes. a moment of reversal. And if you, the yes. one that came up for me here was if you've ever seen the movie, The Sixth Sense. Of course. You're going yes. through the whole movie, you know, you, you know, whatever, there's a lot of things happening. And then that one moment, that climactic moment where you realize, um, Bruce, I think Bruce Willis was the, the character, right? That he realized was one of the, oh, uh, spoiler alert for anyone that hasn't seen yeah. the movie. <laughs> He yeah. is one of the deceased people that the yes. child has yes. been describing. You all of a sudden have this, that, that moment of reinterpretation, the whole film, the data of the film hasn't changed at all, but your interpretation has changed completely. Isn't that amazing? Right? Yeah. So you could, and, and you had, and yet you couldn't have gotten to that point if you hadn't followed the plot. And then when you get to right. that point, everything is reinterpreted. Yes. Right? And it may, and it all made, it made sense getting there. 
And then the reversal makes sense. And then of course, that moment is in you is symbolic of the sixth sense that is going on yes, in the movie, yes. right? Right. Yes. That ability to have these deeper realizations. Yeah. And that, and, and that, and, and that's, that's what, that's, what's, you know, so, so profound about what, 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 when you're reading through the Republic, because he keeps doing that to you. Like, and so, right. It, and then and if you read any dialogue, Socrates keeps doing that to you. I tried to adopt this style when I'm teaching my students. And so I'll be teaching them. Here's a particular theory of how categorization works. Here's why it makes sense and everything. And then I'll criticize it and demolish it. And I'll say, and no, no, and that makes makes way for this theory, right? So we start with the classical theory and blah blah. blah. And here's the prototype theory. See how it's so much better in there. All right, and then okay, right? And now I demolish it. And they go, what's going on? And I'm trying to see. <laughs> but notice what's happening. Notice how you're going back and what you thought was such a simple thing to understand, explain categorization you're now realizing in both senses of the word right how profound an act it really is and why it's so hard to get it into artificial intelligence was if i just said to you well this is really hard right you wouldn't like you 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 take in the proposition but you wouldn't have gone through that process of progress and reversal and pro further progress and reversal that would help you really get it from the inside i mean plato described well, the Shatani describes Plato's theory of the form as an intimate knowledge, this knowledge from the inside that you get by going through this dramatic process. So think again of the dramatic story of a relationship and how it, like, I will, I will, I, not, I fairly frequently, I will say to, to my partner, I'll say, I, I don't understand this and I'm falling in love with you even deeper than, and I thought I was as deep as I could be. And, and now I find that I'm falling, and, and this isn't an infatuation, we've been together over seven years, right? And it's like, wow. And, 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 and of course I took everything that happened between us to get to there. And then that moment makes me reinterpret and re-understand in a deeper way, all of that history. And then, then it makes a new future possible. I, and and again, this is a way of trying to right exemplify and by exemplifying remind us that we're not just we're not talking about really abstract stuff. We're talking about the guts of how we get deeply connected to ourselves, other people, and the world. Yeah, beautifully said. I like the, the going inside. You know what comes up for me there is, yeah. again is that the 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 symbol symbolism of the sexual act or the ultimate act of love as the way to understanding. Right. And it, yes, and it, yes. Um, there's an, uh, I read the book recently, the psychology of totalitarianism by Matthias Desmond. And he just made the point that I think I said this to you recently, but a lot of the scientists, the great scientists of the world get to, to the extent of rationality and realize there's some mystical domain beyond which yeah. rationality cannot go and it's empathy that can that can relate you to that domain so it's this there's a there's a lovingness that is yes. intrinsic to reason as we talked about before yeah it, it's it like law reason has within it this love and that love takes reason beyond itself to what it was always seeking right it, it, 
in a profound way. Yes. Is, is that the common denominator between them is that they both reach beyond themselves, both love and reason. They always, yes. seek to, yes. as you just said, create and then demolish, create. Yeah. Yes. They reach beyond themselves in that, in that dramatic, in the way we're talking about it, fashion. And they both, they both require transformation. They both require self-transcendence. Uh, they both require, as Murdoch said, that we acknowledge something other than ourselves is real. Right. I, 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 yes, again and again and again. This is the right. And, and again, what, as you start to get into this platonic way of seeing things, it, it, you keep seeing, oh, wow, all the ways in which they fit together. And then you wonder when you come back out of it, why, why are we in a culture that has put them so oppositional to each other in such an entrenched manner? And yeah. that's, that's yeah. something, that's something that I reflect on repeatedly. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting. How did we go so awry? Do you have an, do you have an estimate of how we, how did we diverge reason and love so far? Well, I mean, I tried to do the best I could of that very hard question and awakening from the meaning crisis where, and, and that historical process unfolds in many stages and in many ways, but part of it, part of it not all of it, is what I've been trying to indicate about we reduced contemplative reason to computational reason, and we're now moving towards we're reducing it just to communicative reason. That makes sense. Um, okay, time constraints here. So I'm going to jump to chapter four. Okay. Now this chapter is really interesting too. So I guess if you had to, well, Chapter three is really focused on this moment of reversal, which is really important to understanding the relationship between the absolute and the relative and all of that. Chapter and four. And Socrates is that moment. Yes. Right? That's the other point of the chapter. Yes. yes. Socrates is the moment. The thing we didn't touch on there was his return to the cave symbolizes yes. that moment of reversion. That, that's right. right. Not, not only has he ascended, but he's also re returned. Yes. Um, chapter four is titled On Being Invisible. Yes, yes. And I'll just read uh, an excerpt here at the, the opening of the chapter. Shinla writes, so I turned around and Socrates was nowhere to be seen. Plato often refers to the realm of being in contrast to the realm of becoming as invisible beyond manifestation to the physical senses. At the same time, however, Plato will affirm the higher realm of being is the one that is brightest or most visible. Yes. The end of book five of the Republic contrasts being to becoming as the invisible to the visible. So is that the proper analogy here? Again, I'm coming from the seen versus the unseen of Henry Hazlitt and economics. Would we say that being is to becoming as the unseen is to the seen, is that is it a relationship between visible and invisible? Well, sort of. Uh, but I mean, if you'll allow me, right after um, your where you finished, there's this sentence. But then the three analogies of books six and seven all present the intelligible realm as superior to the sensible realm in clarity, manifestness, and brightness. Right. So there's again, it's if you'll allow, I will play with this a little bit. It's invisible to the senses, right? But yet it is what's most visible 
to our understanding. Right, right. And, and, and if you remember, I was trying to do that. Remember, when we were talking about the through line, right? It's not any particular aspect. It's right. It's let, let's use the, the analogy. It's not any particular note, right? It's kind of a no note, a no thingness. Yet, if you take away the melody, you just get cacophony, right? And so the, it, you, you can't hear it, but the, you know how we, 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 we even make a distinction. Hopefully, I'm going to play with something. Hopefully, I'll, we make a distinction between seeing and looking and hearing and listening. You could sort of hear a cacophony, but there's nothing to listen to. When I put the melody into the notes, I don't, I don't I not only hear, but I can listen. And that is not something sense like I, like I can't, I can't, I can't perceive that, but it makes the it makes perception actually possible for me. Yeah, is that then the is the through line in that sense the connect the connection of attention, right? There's someone that paid attention to create the melody and then that gives someone a listener some well, the listener's let, attention something to connect to let me ask you this because this will really bring out something we're doing here so when bach is writing the melody is he inventing something or is he discovering something this is a great question um i i don't know that's why i use this term inventio from latin which mm. means both to discover and to make and 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 so when you want to say it's both discovery and making I think you're pointing to Plato's point that it's participation. We are participating in it. We're not making it, just making it. We're not just receiving it. We're participating in it. Like again, the way we participate in love, the way we participate in reason. And so wow. that would be how I would answer your question. I just wanted to say that's a really, just in Bitcoin circles, that's a very popular question because people always talk about Bitcoin being invented, obviously. Someone created this piece of software but it's also in a way a discovery because it's it represents this one-time thing you can never make it you can't remake it you can't make money nobody can print again it's just like it's like zero i wrote a piece yes. on this where you can't re you can't rediscover or reinvent the number zero in the same way you can't rediscover or reinvent bitcoin so it's a very it's a tricky um, the difference between the two is very subtle well, well, I, I think I, I, I would I, I would go stronger. I would say that it's only tricky if you're trying to reduce it to action or passion, meaning re re reception. When, but if you if you think of participation as the fundamental relation, then it go then you get the reversal. You realize, oh wait, 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 wait. You know, is it you know, well, you know, well, well, well you know. People, human beings put this ship together, all this wood together and made a ship, they made it. But did they make all the geometrical principles and all the electromagnetic principles and all the mathematics? Did they do that or, right, or did they actually discover something that was always really possible within the universe? And when you start to think platonically, you go, oh, right. Every making is always, a, is also a discovering in a, a very important way. And then Again, you start to, I, I, I want people to much more than see Plato. I want them to see platonically. When I was doing that, when, remember when I talked about reading Spinoza, I went from reading Spinoza to seeing Spinozistically. And this is what 
This is what Plato wants you to do via Socrates. This is what Schindler wants you to do. Wants not to see Plato or think about Plato, but see and think platonically in your life as you move around. Wow. No, that's, yeah. And that's where I think a lot of people really derive value from this type of work is, you know, to use your analogy, putting on new glasses, right? And yes. You see a whole yes. new world. And yes. one, I, I like your analogy of the ship shipbuilders because presumably they were driven by a love for exploration or a love for seafaring yes. or a love of adventure, right? So that is a necessary ingredient to shipbuilding itself. And, and think about the, and the, you know, the initial evolution of, of tool building, how, looking at a rock and somehow seeing within the rock the possibility of the tool. We take that for granted. But stop and think about no other, well, there's a few organisms that make tools, but nothing like what we do. Nothing like even like a Homo erectus Acheulean hand axe. There is nothing like that. And yet we take that ability for granted, which of course means it's been given to us, right? Uh, and that, I mean, to reawaken what's going on in that is so important. Agreed completely. Um, I want to read an excerpt from a footnote actually on page 195 sure and says that it is interesting that socrates at a particular moment in the dialogue describes self-knowledge as a radically different form of knowing than all the others yes since as knowing what one knows and doesn't know it is a unifying measure for all knowledge in this sense i'm sorry in this it would resemble the good yes uh what is it what is it about self-knowledge that most that so closely resembles the good? Because, oh, wow, this is so thrilling, right? Right. Remember when, it, you know, that pinnacle of learned ignorance. So self-knowledge is when you realize, so we're not talking about your ability to declare your propositions. It's to have that Socratic realization of what you know and what you do not know. And it, it is to come to the very horizon of intelligibility and for and for Socrates that's also the epitome of wisdom because that simultaneously well think about coming to a horizon it brings you towards something but it also right it it also is beckoning you beyond it now that's a symbol of the good precisely because it is that it that moment is that moment where the procession the return Right when the absolute and the, when they're all doing that all at once, that is right. Why it resembles, I would say, stronger. And I think Schindler should have said that's why it participates and exemplifies its participation in the good. Well, so so knowing yourself and knowing your own boundaries in whatever space you're talking about, physical skill yes. set, whatever and uh acting in accordance with that relationship is closest to the good because that's what the good that's what most closely resembles the good is proper yeah, yes. something like that because you come to that moment remember when we were talking about the symbol as translucent right you you right you you, you look right you're looking through it but you're also aware of it so i'm aware of my framing but I'm still looking through my framing. And, and so what I'm getting, right, is that interpenetration of sort of my, 
my farthest reach and and the the and how i can it's almost like i could the reach it, it becomes itself a symbol of that which is beyond the reach and, and so that action again of trying to grasp and realizing you cannot fully grasp discloses to you that you are even more being grasped by reality mm. and then that is where you are then participating in the good so it's another way of thinking about it is right insofar as you give up on the sense the pretense of being an expert of oneself because you know your autobiography and realizing, no, no, the self is actually very mysterious. I can't ever actually bring it into view because whenever I try to bring my framing into view, I'm, I'm behind it. And that, and so when I try and trace out the through line that is myself, I find this perpetual mystery. And then that, that kind of deep self-knowledge makes me realize, oh, there's a through line to reality that I also cannot completely frame. Because every time I think I've got the total picture, there's something outside that is making the light and energy, like the sun, of that picturing possible, right? Um, in, the, in the Upanishads, there's uh, one of the Upanishads says that Brahman, the supreme reality, is not anything the eye can see, but the power by which the eye sees. Mm, the mediating third. Yes, exactly. Right. And so when you get to the horizon, when you get to learned ignorance, you are at the place of the mediating third. You are mm. in placing yourself in the mediating third. And the ideal mediating third would be invisible, right? Yes. And can you see anybody's self? <laughs> no, but, great. But, 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 but again, if, but you can't and you can, right? You can't see it. It's invisible in one obvious concrete sense, but you also get a sense of the person as you, if you'll allow me the meta metaphor, as you start to pick up on the melody of their personality, the melody of their character. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, and again, mediating third in the monetary sense, money's sort of the same, like you can see it, but you can't see it, right? You, it's this whole giant distributed network of information um and if you uh, i forgot where i was going with that but it's it's interesting well, I'll, do, I'll, do, I'll do something with that and that's what from our, our previous series i i had suggested to you that part of what you're doing and maybe this platonic uh thing is helping with that you're trying uh, to disclose a potential sacredness in money and i don't mean in the greedy sense of i want lots of money you're trying to get us to step back and see the ontology and how it's enmeshed in all of this intelligence and dynamic self-organization, et cetera, and, and then appreciate it in a way that could maybe even get people to give up just a greed orientation towards it and move to an appreciation orientation towards it. Do you think that's fair of you or if I- no, Very, very, very fair. And um, again, if, identity is that which is structurally functionally organized like whatever yes. contributes to that organization is really important to being itself right the yes, transjective yes. mediating third yeah. almost yes. is being in, in many ways you can't yes. just have a subject or object you need this 
cohesion yes. between them. And I think globally, if you want to look at like humanity on balance, I think it is money that that binds people together, ultimately, even more than nationality. We see how fragmented nationality can be. Um, but I, you know, gold is accepted everywhere in the world, as is Bitcoin. So it's uh, so, so that is why, you know, if it is corrupted or if it is corrupt, I don't know which way to say it right now, mm -hmm. then something very, very, you know, the opposite of sacred, something irreligious or sacrilegious uh, is happening. I, I don't want to, I, I know you're not trying to turn money into an idol. I'm not saying that, but I'm trying to get at something. You're trying to get people to stand back and really appreciate what this is so that they can ah, enter into proper ratio religio uh, yes. with it. Yes, absolutely. And if um, the corrupt, if it is that, right, it's almost like the lifeblood almost. If your blood is, if the blood of an yeah. organism is corrupt, it's, you know, a bad situation. And um, if there is a, way to unify people on some incorruptible standard then you um it's um you know what it is it's image it's image it's appearances and being what we've yes. done with money is gold like you use physical gold that was a very close image of the actual being of money which is kind of like this uh medium for capturing the residual energy we we liberate through the division of labor right, right? right we're working right. together to create more wealth than we could in isolation money is the symbol of that money symbolizes right. how much you've created or stored of that that overflow right. of energy if you will to use a, a pearl right. term maybe yeah but when you then abstract that into paper and then someone violently controls the production of that paper the image is divorced from the reality and I guess in that schism is where all of this uh, nefarious, you know, the badness grows. Ultimately, so the central bank is used yeah. to fund World War One, World War Two. We yeah, often yeah. talk about the atrocities of the 20th century, but we don't often talk about the source. The source is the central bank. Right. So, um, yeah, I guess that's what I'm aiming at. <laughs> well, 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 that means I've understood you well, then. Um, and that's good. Uh, I think... Um, like I said, I think that we can, the, the, for me, not to try to diminish what you're saying, but for me, the fact that you can see these principles in, and, and symbols and images in economics, in biology, in physics, this is for me um, something that you know, makes me want to step back and try and you know, polyangulate towards what is it that is causing this sort of fractal appearance of these appearance uh, of these sorry of these patterns and principles and processes in all these otherwise disparate domains and that's what really intrigues me as a cognitive scientist and as a follower of socrates yeah me as well i mean if anything i'm perhaps trying to extrapolate things that I've learned in economics. And like you said, you, your model is a bioeconomic model, right? Economics is very yes, intrinsic in all of these systems. Yes, so, very much. Very much. Um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I get so excited <laughs> in these conversations, I almost lose my train of thought just from the excitement. Um, I'm going to read an excerpt from page 195 and 196. And 
beside this excerpt, I have written BTC, which is Bitcoin, three times. So that's what I'm thinking about when I read this. Okay. okay. Shinla writes, standing under judgment of an absolute as opposed to a relative measure is thus coincident with one's being one's own measure. Yes. Socrates, again, presents the paradigm of this self-judgment by pointing to himself as his most persistent questioner. Yes. For this reason, Socrates' very presence is a call to judgment, which we would expect if he is a real image of goodness. Mm -hmm. There is, in this respect, a connection between being measured by the good and being absolute in one's own right, which is analogous to the way chapter two articulated the good's being the cause of truth. It is the soul's apportionment of the general metaphysical structure of reality, knowing the good and thus becoming a self knower slash self judger is a likeness of the uh, Greek words, which I don't know relation that constitutes the reality of being by being measured by the absolute, a person becomes inwardly true. And his becoming true allows the truth of things to become apparent. Right. Now, I know you talked to my friend, John Vallis, uh, yes. and he, he does a lot of work on these personal transformations in the lives of Bitcoiners. And I can't help but just hear that where just by relating to something that's absolute and purely true in whatever capacity, you know, people are building businesses on it, researching on it. I'm reading Plato now as a result of yeah. going down the Bitcoin rabbit yeah. hole. Who knew I was going to end yeah. up here talking to you? I had no yes, idea. Yes. It's creating some internal movement where people are, yes. I want to be more like Socrates. You know, I've, I've gone back towards Christianity and tried to be more of a disciple of Christ. Um, what? Okay. Now I'm going to take a hard, weird <laughs> turn here. Norbert Wiener, have you heard of him? The cybernetics guy? Yes, of course. Okay, so I've just started reading cybernetics, so forgive all my ignorance about it. But one of the things he does in cybernetics is he describes the organism as a message. Yes. And so yes. could it perhaps be that the more truthful the mediating third becomes between human organisms, which are messages, that the more honest we become as the message itself. So as we purify our messaging systems, whether it's language or money, we can actually purify ourselves as cybernetic organisms. Well, I, I think that makes, um, I think that's a very good proposal that makes good sense. Um, I mean, Plato is very much about trying to clean up um, the communication in distributed cognition that will release collective intelligence to use some of my language as best as possible. I mean, that's the whole Republic is exemplifying it, demonstrating it. And I, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to get people to practice dialectic into dialogos for exactly that reason. And, and notice what, what he's saying here about the measuring and right. This is again, remember we talked about the anagoge of coming out of the cave, right? If you move to an, into a brighter realm, it causes your eyes to accommodate so that you can then see the ground so that you can move into an even brighter realm that causes your eyes to accommodate. Or as you are grasping, you are being even more grasped and you're being drawn. And all of these different images are, are basically saying that when you are engaged in this participatory contemplative reason, 
you, the, your self-knowledge and your knowledge of reality become completely interdependent and interpenetrating. And again, the analogy of loving somebody profoundly, you don't just know them, you, you internalize them, and then you indwell them and internalize them. And they're doing that more and more and more. And so your self-knowledge and your knowledge of them becomes conjoined so much so that the deepest knowledge I have of, my, of Sarah, my partner, is in how I have seen myself transformed. My, my self-knowledge is hmm. actually the deepest knowledge I have of her. So the way, and this is again, participatory knowing. I participate in how myself conforms to something and my knowledge of myself and the, my knowledge of that thing, sorry, it's not a thing, but, but right. They, they, they interpenetrate, they reciprocally open it to each other. So uh, yes. And so if, if that reciprocal opening is what we're talking about, then making the medium of the reciprocation better is, of course, a very virtuous thing to do. Wow, beautifully said. You used this term earlier, reciprocal reconstruction. Yes. So it's like every thing you're engaged with, I guess there's some reciprocal reconstruction. Maybe this is a form of memetics even, right? I'm I'm yes, yes. Back to Girardian memetics where we're always mirroring one another, but it could be maybe extended beyond the biological domain into oh, maybe yeah. our technologies, I don't know, our, our institutions perhaps. Um, and then that would be the way you described there, your self-knowledge. That's another reason self-knowledge is a superior resemblance of the good, right? That Exactly, exactly. She's transforming exactly. you at the self-knowledge level. Right, as long as you hear that Socratically, this doesn't mean your autobiography. It means your owner's manual. It means the very, you know, the, the, the principles by which you operate. Right. That's right. the kind of knowledge we're talking about here. We're not talking about knowing your autobiography. It's not completely irrelevant, but it's not your auto, it's not your story in that sense. It's like, like I said, it's like, it's more like your owner's manual. Yes. No, it's a good analogy. Um, again, I have, I've only read one of Norbert's books so far. And I don't know squat about cybernetics beyond that book. What do you know much about that? Organisms as messages, or sure, yeah, yeah. And, and 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 I mean, cybernetics has been taken up into dynamical systems, hmm. uh, and and then you you, it, you there's connection between cybernetics, dynamical system, and what's called you know we, uh, Shannon uh, infor information theory, the theory of information. Infor which is not the same as what people normally think of when they think of information. Information is a uh, probabilistic relationship between events so that uh, uncertainty about one event is reduced, right? So if the probability of A given B is greater than the probability of A alone, that B provides information in this technical sense for A. And that means in, in that sense, there's information all over the place. Mm -hmm. Now, the interesting question for the cognitive scientist is how does that information become the kind of information we mean when we when we're thinking about what we know what's intelligible to us mm. and yet they can't be absolutely separate they have right our cognitive information participates is literally made out of physical information and yet it transcends it in some fashion mm. and you see you can see everything we're talking about 
here. I, even when you start thinking about cybernetics and information theory and dynamical systems theory, your mind is made out of technical information, but it also makes itself into something beyond technical information. It becomes a kind of autopoetic information that can know about physical information. Wow. It's incredible. It, I'm, there's this term used in film called levels of intentionality, you yeah. know, where like maybe one character knows that another character knows something, but yeah. then the yes, audience yeah. member doesn't know yeah. that they know, yeah, and yeah. you can go up these yeah, levels. Yeah. <laughs> and yes. As you're describing that, it sounds like, so maybe there is an actual dramatic structure to cosmos or information, something like that. Yeah, I, I mean, in the platonic sense, I think that's right. And, and, and notice we're doing a lot here about the visible and the invisible. Because again, do you see information or is information that which makes seeing possible? Mm. And then what's right? You, and I, in some sense, I can see the physical information, but then I have to grasp it through the cognitive information. And yet that is what makes it uh, you know, intelligible to me. And so every, everything we're doing, we're, we're circling back on this theme of the interpenetration and the levels of the visible and the invisible. By the way, Marlo Ponti, his last book was called The Invisible and the Visible, and he was wrestling with exactly this problem. Well, I need to write that down then as a book recommendation from you, I take it. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend reading The Invisible and the Invisible directly. I would recommend perhaps reading Lowe's book, on the, uh, which I can send you the information for. Uh, okay. But yes, uh, read it. Try I, I, I said I've been I, I, I'm struggling with I, I I'm trying so much to bring I, I don't want Plato out there as like something like a like a, a conceptual abstraction I'm trying to bring it into and integrate it with phenomenology with the with the very structures of our experience that make sense that help us that make our experience intelligible and livable to us that's what I mean by seeing platonically I don't want you to I don't want people just thinking about platonic concepts i want to tie it to their phenomenology so they can internalize it they can they can be like socrates they can actually see this way and see how they and the world are changed by that way of seeing and being that for me will help to address the meaning crisis mm. yes changing at, a, at the level of action right rather than just proposition yeah, and, and the level uh, uh, even, you know, of action and embodiment, instantiation, participation, mm. all the way down, all the way down, and all the way up. Yeah, at the same time. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, I want to, this is a very short excerpt, but I just wanted to hear your thoughts on it, because it, this line really struck me. Schindler wrote, to be an end in themselves, I guess I could back up just a little bit but it's the last line that i was going to ask about what, what page are we on i'm on 197 top of 197 okay but it is essential to see that wisdom as plato understands it can be an object of love only if the good itself is the highest end pursued right the divided line shows that apart from the transcendence of the good reasons objects can be no more than hypo hypotheses which right. are never grasped in themselves and for their own sake, but simply as means to conclusions different from them. And this is the line I wanted to ask you about. To be an end in themselves, they must be viewed as relative to endness itself. 
i.e. to the good. In this sense, one must love more than ideas in order to love ideas properly. That's what I was just saying. That's what I was just saying. That's what I was trying to convey. That's exactly it. He said it much better than I did. But that's exactly it. That's the, that is what, I, that is what, and, and I, again, thank you for this opportunity. That's what I'm trying to, that's what I'm trying to convey about this. If there's one line to take away, it's exactly that, you know, one must love more than ideas in order to love ideas properly. And that is the heart of contemplative reason. And is that where we've, I mean, at least partially where we've gone astray in the meaning crisis? Is that we've divorced yes. those things? Yes. We don't participate in intelligibility. We, right. well, we do, but we do unconsciously. We don't, we don't do everything we're doing here, mm. right? Because uh, there's, you know, there's mythology. It's like, well, what's the good of all of this? Well, it, like it, the good of this is the good, uh, but you have to go through this transformative process and, and it's not, a, 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 you know, an, an abstract idea. It's something that is like it, it, it enlivens and enlightens every aspect of your perception and your cognition, your self-understanding, your understanding of other people. And that we've lost that. We've lost that. We, we took we lost all that contemplative stuff and we reduced it to the computation that calculated conclusions. And, and, and we and then we were and then we. We've said, well, we can't even come to conclusions, blah, 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 blah. But what we can do is, you know, well, it's communicative rationality. It's how I'm influencing you and how you're influencing. And what we've done is we've lost everything that we've been talking about here in that process. Now, you can understand why uh, it can happen because, you know, this, this is something that is very hard to get people to remember when something like the scientific revolution is taking off. Right, because, right. But what people got, what people need to remember, is that everybody, Galileo, Kepler, and some of the people before them, that started the scientific revolution, were all considered themselves deeply Platonist in a profound way. But we've lost the origin. We've lost the origin, and we are now very far from it because of the way things have unfolded. Wow, that's. Yeah, kind of scary in a way that we we really lost the foundations. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm glad glad to have read that line because that I hear you, I hear what you're saying, but I think it now to connect that to love again is really yes. powerful. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Very much. And I and a moment ago I was trying not trying I was I, I just spontaneously exemplifying that right and i'm not i'm not saying i'm socrates or anything but what i'm saying is in that in those moments when you realize you're exemplifying something more than just talking about it you get a sense of the reality of what you're participating in that goes beyond any of the ideas that are coming out in your speech yes yeah well said that's what, that's what i mean when i say things like you know there's a big difference between reading the kama sutra and actually making love <laughs> right yes very real distinction between propositional and participatory being and perspectival, yeah, and perspectival much, yeah. right yes yeah. okay i again 
push for time a little bit here. We have to talk about the conclusion to this chapter. Um, yes. I'm, I'm going to read a couple of excerpts on pages 202 and 203. Schindler writes, he must save justice, one wants to say, or else die trying. The irony here is, of course, essential. Socrates does die in his attempt to succor justice. If he can interpret his apologia, I'm sorry, if we can interpret his apologia as an insistence on adhering to justice, regardless of practical consequences. The irony then is that it is ultimately this death that ends up justifying justice, i.e. sharing its absolute and unconditional goodness. And so that he had claimed, and so what he had claimed was impossible, turns out in a paradoxical way to be possible without contradicting Socrates' claim. Schindler goes on to write, death is, after all, absolute insofar as it represents the elimination of everything all at once. By revealing that his own life means less to him than the good, Socrates wholly relativizes himself to it. He makes himself absolutely relative, as it were, which is another way of saying he becomes a relative manifestation of the absolute in a manner that compromises neither the relativity of the relative nor the absoluteness of the absolute. We might say that what was once always implicit in Socrates becomes explicit in Greek fashion in the contest of the trial. Um, I mean, I got chill bumps reading that like I did the yeah. first time. And um, I mean, this is it. I guess this is, this is how he ultimately manifests, how he is the living symbol of the good, right? That he yes. will, will lay yeah. down everything, including the absolution of death and his own existence to embody so, it for others at the trial he says and 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 try and try and take everything we've been talking about and put it into these words the unexamined life is not worth living and the only way to demonstrate that in a profound way is to die for it because if the unexamined life is not worth living and they are threatening him with right a life that he would have to live in an unexamined fashion, he would rather die. So he gives a truth to that claim that no amount of argumentation, right, could possibly give. It's incredible. Um, And so I'm going to ask you, I think I know the answer, but is it, is it in his self-immolation that Socrates did successfully justify justice? Was this the closure to the argument? If you think that justice, as I do, and this is part of Plato's argument, is deeply connected to contemplative rationality, the ratio religio, the proper proportioning, that's the justice in the psyche, the proper proportioning of power in the state. Like if you think of all, and all of that is actually ultimately symbolic, right? If you think of justice as therefore deeply connected to the Socratic life of perpetual examination in this sense that we've been talking about here then yes he exemplifies it and and part of my concern for what's happening right now is i want to i want to say this very carefully and i hope i'm not misunderstood is is kind of an idolatry of justice we are holding it up but and we are looking at it so much in our society but we're not seeing through it to the good 
Because if you ask most people, what do they mean by justice? You don't get Plato's Republic, which is a, the whole book is about, you get some very simplistic, oftentimes almost kindergarten account of what justice is. Well, it's fairness or it's treating everybody, you know, with kindness. And it's like that, right? That to me, when we're simultaneously elevating something, but looking at it in, through only one aspect and we're losing all the, the through line through all the aspects, that to me is idolatry. And I'd say this not because I disagree with the pursuit of justice, but because I love it. And I think the greatest threat to anything is an idol that is taking its place. Like, if we are so concerned about justice, why are we not talking about it deeply, about what it really is? What is its idos? What is justice? You've got Plato's Republic. You've got John Rawls' book. You've got like deep, profound reflections. And, and you start to realize, oh my gosh, I, I don't know what justice is. It's a through line. And, I'm, and you get a humility about it. And you get a commitment to living into it as much as possible. Instead of what I, I often see, which is kind of an arrogant presumption on all sides. I'm not taking a political position here where pe all people are doing is invoking and pointing at the appearances and the consequences and yet an attempt to understand the reality of justice is seriously lacking. And so the, to me, when, when you compare what I've just criticized with Socrates' death and ask yourself, who is really more deeply pursuing justice? Yeah, beautifully said. Um, and what, what came for me here is that in his self-sacrifice, he cemented I don't know the, we this pursuit of excellence. It seems like he he grabbed on to excellence actually, and sort of not but for he, himself, yeah, but for yeah. others achieved it to some extent. But he allowed himself to be grabbed by it. Mm. His death is to be grabbed by the absolute and by reality in an incontrovertible way, mm. incontrovertible way. And of course, and again, just to right. Well, and then there's similarities, and I and I'm not. You know, and people have pointed out that historically Socrates might have served as a, you know, as a literary uh, a model for people trying to understand Jesus and his self-sacrificial death. Again, I'm not saying that Socrates is divine or the son of God or anything, but again, there's reason why many of the church fathers saw deep, similar, deep potential conciliates between the depths of Plato exemplified in Socrates and the depths of Christianity as uh, more than exemplified, I guess, incarnated in right. Jesus. And these, I mean, both the self-sacrifice of Socrates and of you know, Jesus of Nazareth, I mean, these were laying the bedrock of Western civilization as we understand it today, right? Exactly. And, and to... And, and both, well, I, for, I, 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 Socrates would want us to constantly question 
right? Um, I, I won't speak for Jesus, but that, that strikes me as a, a little too pretentious, but right, what I mean by that is it's right that we keep reflecting on this, uh, and, and, but um, the fact that it is now being dismissed as, again, part of this, right, this sort of idolatry, right, uh, it's like, I, I, I don't understand that. I, I, uh, uh, we, we have an individual who, right, is a profound symbolic enacted exemplification and he, 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 he symbolic and, and exemplifies it unto death. Um, we have to take somebody who lives justice to that degree seriously if we claim to take justice seriously. Like, how can, like, well, he's, he's white male and stuff. I get that. I get that there's problems and we're trying to wrestle that. But that's not this, like, put that aside. Here is somebody, right, who took justice so seriously in his life and his thought and in his death. We, we can't afford to ignore that example. We should consider other examples. We should not be exclusively focused. I'm not saying that. But I, I if you want to understand justice or if you want to understand wisdom, you I, I look for individuals who have taken it so so seriously that um, if I claim to take it seriously, I would regard it as hypocrisy not to reflect on their life and their words and their work. Well said. All right, I'll read one last excerpt and I just want to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, this is one near and dear to my heart, actually. So Schindler writes, in short, freedom from what is lower comes at each stage only through a love for and thus dependence on what is higher. Yeah. Love always means some kind of dependence. It is impossible to avoid loving something most and thus making oneself dependent in an absolute way on something, even if it happens to be, for example, one's own immediate gratification. Yes. To be free in the most total sense does not mean to be utterly independent, for this would necessarily mean to be without love for everything, for anything, sorry, yes. which is impossible in any event. But to be dependent only on what is in reality highest with all this, dependent, with all this dependence entails. Perfect freedom is thus identical to absolute obedience to what is absolute. Yes, uh, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, and, 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 we, and we were talking about this earlier, I think, I can't remember if it was our first or second discussion about sort of love as a voluntary necessity. It's right, you, you're, you, 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 it seems to be something that you are choosing, but nevertheless, you find yourself, as he says, in, in, uh, in a dependency relationship. Um, and, and that's because you ultimately want to be connected to a reality that transcends your set of egocentric, uh, you know, per, per, uh, uh, per preferences, right? Um, one thing about that uh, is, is uh, about love and, and moving the levels, because um, the, the, the drama is there, because like when I go from the letters to the word, right, there's a sense in which I can't really predict the gestalt until it arrives. Um, Jonathan Pajot talks about this, and this is one of the ways in which he 
um, talks about faith. He talks about, uh, uh, and, and there's a video out with him and I and David Fuller talking, like there's this love that draws you from the lower level features to the gestalt that you can't get from the features. But once you're at the gestalt, like in the story, once you get to the climax, then from the perspective of the gestalt, all the features make sense. And there again is the ascension and the return, right? And there's the drama in it. And, 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 and so I, there, that, that love, if what we've been talking about is right, and if love is drawing us into more and more into the whole, it's gonna always do that. It's gonna draw us into gestalts that are, or frames to use my language, that aren't predictable from smaller frames. But once we're in the larger frames, we can make better sense of the smaller uh, frame. So there's a sense in which um, love is not only binding you into reason, but in this sense of faithfulness to the calling to leap in that fashion and then understand um, there's, there's something like faithfulness or faith, if you wanna be religious, in this as well. And um, I, I have looked for people both that I can know as persons and also people that I can know as paradigms like Socrates that are faithful in return for me in that way. Uh, and that they enable me to have that ratio religio to reality. And that has been a profound guide for me um, for making my life concretely better. And I'm saying all of this because I'm again trying to bring that very profound thing you just read back down into the guts of how you're living your life, how you're relating to yourself, how you're relating to other people, how you're relating to the world. And, and, and Socrates would like that um, because he, 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 well, to use a phrase, Socrates was very willing to get his hands dirty uh, for his philosophical principles. And um, I, I just want to, again, impress on people because, you know, Robert, you and I, we, we are, we're getting, and, and we should, we're getting into some very lofty language and, you know, we're, we're really pushing the limits of conception and reflection. But we, I, we always have to balance that ecstatic ascent with the humbling return again and again, again, if we truly want to get Socrates' lesson. Excellently said. Um, I really look forward to continuing this with you tomorrow, John. Me too. And thankfully, technology, which is the God that limps, uh, was was gracious enough to let us com <laughs> uh, to complete uh, complete tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much, Robert. It's, I, I look forward to I look forward to finishing um, this very deep tasting of this very deep book. As do I. Thank you so much, John.